Welcome. We're glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. When God's Son, Jesus Christ, became one of us, His rule and reign broke into history in a new and unprecedented way through His life of love. Jesus lived to tirelessly benefit others. Just before He returned to His Father, He said, My command is this, love each other as I loved you. So the mission, the yearning of Waterstone, is to live for others so that others see Jesus. We're so glad that you're here and encourage you to attend in person if you're able. Our weekend services are on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. I realize it's been a really long time since I'm, I've impressed you. So um, this morning, I am going to recite our scripture passage from memory. All right. The word of the Lord. Are you ready? Practice hospitality. Romans 12:13b During the next 30 minutes I would actually like you to begin and have a dialogue with God through his holy spirit right now present in us about what that's going to look like for you It's an imperative it's something that God's people must strive to obey, practice hospitality. Now, we'll walk through that today, we'll define it, give some ideas, really talk about the impact that hospitality's had in the church, all that. So you'll have some good conversation material with the Lord, but really at the beginning and at the end, I'd really like us to have this dialogue with God today about Lord, how do you want me to practice hospitality for you? Let's start with food, shall we? You and I begin our journey as a single cell, barely visible to the human eye. And then, as we become adult-sized, we increase our bulk 120 billion-fold. And we do it from the outside in ingestion, eating, bring in the food, supersize me. Food is big. It has amazing power. And therefore, it's not just that it builds us from the inside up, it also shapes us from the outside. We schedule so much of our living around food. One of the great theologies of food, a classic, was by Leon Cass, who taught at the University of Chicago, and he wrote this great book about food called The Hungry Soul, and he talks about how much food shapes us. Uh, here's the quote. I'm, if, I, if I could rap, I would rap this quote, but I'll just read it fast. You'll get the idea. Enormous time and energies are poured into growing, harvesting, rearing, butchering, preserving, packaging, storing, transporting, stocking, selling, buying, preparing, cooking, and consuming food. The manufacture of tables, chairs, stoves, refrigerators, dishes, glasswares, utensils, and kitchen gadgets. The provision of homes with fuel for cooking, with water for drinking and cleaning, and with electricity for, 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 for <laughs> refrigeration. 
the operation of groceries, bakeries, supermarkets, restaurants, and services for garbage collection and sanitation, the scientific development of new fertilizers and animal feed, of pest-resistant crops, and of genetically engineered high-yielding livestock, all these and more follow from the increasingly complex ways in which we arrange to meet our most basic need. We are because we eat. So it is not surprising that when Jesus lived with us, he spent a lot of time around food. Was he a party animal? Maybe. My old seminary professor, Craig Blomberg, put it like this. Was Jesus a party animal? Not in the sense we usually mean by that expression. Someone who simply loves to eat, drink, and enjoy other forms of entertainment with friends just for the immense pleasure of it. There were always kingdom purposes involved in Jesus' presence at banquets and other special meals. Yet, it remains striking how willing Jesus was to socialize even in the intimacy of table fellowship with anyone and everyone for the sake of accomplishing his mission. The mission, food, hospitality. Today, I'd like us to think about hospitality in three different ways. The first way is I'd like us to see how hospitality has fueled the church through the age. That hospitality has always been a driving force. In fact, one early church father called food and hospitality the charming feature of Christianity. Second, I'd like us to take a deep dive into what it means by hospitality. I think in American culture, we're already thinking, oh, it's a two-hour time block where we have food, have a nice evening, and then go home. It's much more than that. And we'll talk about the uh, ins and outs of hospitality and the various ways that we can all practice it, no matter our personality. So introverts, calm down. Or our resources. Hospitality is a calling for all of us. So we'll look at what that means. And then lastly, I want to give us some specific handles and ways to think about hospitality. And I'm warning you, I may put us into a bit of tension around that, like Amos the prophet. Uh, So uh, anyhow, if you're mad at me when you leave just a little bit, I've done my job. You ready? Ready? Break. Let's go. I want to talk about uh, the big picture of this three-week series for a moment. We're calling it Become Like Jesus and Live for Others. Our mission as a church, here's the statement that our leadership, uh, you know, is thirsting for every day, and this helps us to say yes to things and no to things, is we want to be people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim His kingdom, His rule, His reign, and then demonstrate His love justice and mercy to our neighbor. That's what guides us. We've been talking over the last few weeks, though, about how long that is. And and don't worry, we don't expect anyone to memorize that unless you work here. Uh, It's just a long statement. It's a guiding statement for us as we make decisions. What we have done is tried to shape it down to like a seven-word or less statement 
That really summarizes the mission, and that's what, you're, what, what we're talking about in this series. Become like Jesus and live for others. That's why we exist. If I had to put it into one word, and by the way, you're going to be seeing this word a lot this next year. We're going to put it on swag, on shirts, around the, the building, uh, on buttons, uh, wherever we can put it. That mission, our mission, in a word, others others. We exist for others. Now, on the last weekend of the month, January 29th and 30th, the service is going to be dedicated to talking about four, to quote Jim Collins from Good to Great, big, hairy, audacious goals that we're going to be relentlessly pursuing this year. We want you to be on board with us, to know what's going on. We're going to unpack those in the last weekend of the month. But needless to say, all of them have to do with this word, others. And so I thought it would be good for us today to look at Jesus living the mission, others. And for Jesus, it usually began and ended with hospitality. So let's talk about hospitality. Let's see how it's driven the church through the ages. So first, let's go to the longest gospel written by a medical doctor, Luke, and just see how much Jesus lived hospitality and how much food he ate. We're going to put on the screen, uh, every, most every chapter in Luke, Jesus is at a meal. And I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to unpack all this. Just I want you to, at the end of it to kind of say, wow, Jesus ate a lot. Luke 5, tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi. That's Matthew who wrote the first gospel. Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. Paul's going to preach about that next week. It's going to be uh, awesome to be at that meal. Luke 9, he feeds the 5,000. Can you say, supersize it? Uh, Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Mary and Martha. Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Can you say, food fight? Now, Luke 14, Jesus urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. That gets to the root of what this word hospitality means while they were eating a meal together. Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. I actually want us to sit at that table today for five minutes, a little later in the service. Luke 22, the Last Supper, 24, this is cool. The risen Jesus shares a meal with two disciples in Emmaus. Now, you need to understand that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with a physical body. You have to decide, right? You have to decide if that's your story. You have to decide if Jesus rose from the dead because if he did, it changes everything. And it means we have a future, not just as spirits in some ethereal heaven, but in a physical body because Jesus ate, we too shall eat. Food's gonna be big in heaven. Oh, come on, I thought some of you would say amen about it. Here's the big idea. Are you with me? In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming home from a meal. Hospitality was big. So we go into the early church. They caught it, and they understood the word. So we go to the book of Hebrews. And what I'd like to do, we have a couple of texts here. I want us to pretend like we're in the early church, and the apostles are speaking to us. And here's their instructions 
for 2022 for Waterstone Community Church. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Zenos. You'll hear more about that. For by us, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So there the focus of hospitality is outside of our tribe, outside of these walls. But then we read 1 Peter 4. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without <laughs> grumbling. That's inside these walls. That's to our tribe. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Then we go to Titus. And Paul is telling Titus, when you get to Crete, I want you to look for this type of leader. So it's a leadership quality. He must be hospitable. One who loves what is good. One who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. At the end of February, we're going to have our annual meeting, and we're going to have two new elders join our elder board. And one of the questions, when you come to our annual meeting, which I hope you will, we'll provide hospitality for you. I hope you ask them, hey, tell me how you're hospitable, because it's a leadership quality that we need. And then, 1 Timothy 5. This is an interesting one. No widow, Paul writing to Timothy, instructions for the church, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60. Now you need to understand the average lifespan when this was written was around 38. So if you're 60 years old, which I will be in a couple weeks, man, you are ancient. Has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. The way it worked in the early church was that if you were ancient, I mean over 60, you were the responsibility of the church, and the church would take care of you if your spiritual resume included those good deeds. And notice that what's viewed on a spiritual resume as a good deed is hospitality. So we get a glimpse of how vital it was in the early church. And then we go to Justin Martyr. He lived 100 to 165 AD. We know much about the early church because of the writings of Justin Martyr. And listen as I read this quote, how he described the early church, how he views hospitality as crossing racial boundaries and crossing socioeconomic boundaries. He says, we who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions, now bring what we have into a common stock and share with everyone in need. We who hated and destroyed one another because, of their, because their manners were different would not live with men of a different tribe. Now, since the coming of Christ, live naturally with them and pray for our enemies." So it's been this kind of hospitality that has driven the church through the age. And I came across one more that I'd like to briefly mention. As many of you know, one of my favorite things to do at night, I do every night, is I read a biography on, the American, on an American president. 
and I've just finished a 900-page biography on James Monroe uh, by Tim McGrath, highly recommended. But imagine my delight when I read this story early in James Monroe's career. He was living in Philadelphia, 1793, when a pandemic broke out. Pandemic. It was called yellow fever. What began to happen is that thousands and thousands were uh, infected in Philadelphia, and no one quite knew what to do. And as you can imagine, (laughs) nothing new under the sun. It became politicized. So there were those from the party of Thomas Jefferson. Back then, they were called Republicans. Today, they'd be called more like libertarians with some Democratic platform mixed in. But then there were the Republicans. And do you know what Jefferson's party said you should do for yellow fever and to prevent the spread? You should follow the advice of the leading surgeon of the day, Dr. Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration of Independence. Dr. Rush said the way that you stop the pandemic was to bleed yourself. Courts of your blood. There was so much blood in Benjamin Rush's backyard that it was black with flies. Jefferson. Then there was the Federalist Party, modern-day Republicans, Alexander Hamilton. He grew up in the Caribbean where they had yellow fever all the time. And so what Alexander Hamilton did was bring his doctor, Edward Stevens. Edward Stevens proposed a cocktail that if you drank, you could prevent yellow fever. It was burnt cinnamon, quinine, and laudanum, which doctors today would tell you if you drank too much of that at any given one time, you'd never have to worry about yellow fever because you'd be dead. (laughs) So you have Jefferson and Hamilton, and people are dying by the cartloads in Philadelphia. So do you know what the city leaders did? They called the church. They called two African-American pastors named Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. Richard Allen was the founder of a movement called the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And by the way, There are four of these churches still going strong in Denver, and many of us will be downtown tomorrow on Martin Luther King Day walking with many brothers and sisters from the AME churches. Richard Allen, Absalom Jones. Do you know what they did? They didn't have a cure for yellow fever, but what Richard Allen and Absalom Jones did is on the old Philadelphia Pike, which, by the way, I'll be there this Thursday. I'm going home. It's right where my parents live. There's a road in the old days, a big traveled road from Lancaster, Pennsylvania to Philadelphia. And along that road, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones asked other African-American believers if they would be willing to take sick people in with yellow fever and then start cemeteries and help bury the dead outside of the cities. Now, the reason they were initially asked is because Benjamin Rush, the doctor, believed that black people were immune to yellow fever. 
But because Richard Allen and Absalom Jones had a commitment to Jesus Christ and providing hospitality which would drive the church through the ages, they said, okay, we'll help. We'll establish homes along old Philadelphia Pike, and people can go there if they're sick. We'll take care of them. If they die, we'll bury them. And the church of Jesus Christ moves forward. I tell you, it's powered it through all the age. And so what do we mean when we say hospitality? That's our second movement. In Romans 12, 13, it's one word in the original language, practice hospitality, two in English, one in Greek, but it's a beautiful compound word. It's this, phila xenos, phila xenos, phila, phila, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Phila is love. It's friendship. It's making a bond uh, of commitment to someone. It's, it's moving towards someone to make friend. Xenos is the Greek word for stranger. Xenophobia is the fear of strangers. But we're called to practice hospitality, which means we love the stranger. We make strangers into sons. We make the distant into daughters. We don't fear the other. We love the other. That's what hospitality means. To cross borders, to go over bridges, whatever separating, to go through the separation in pursuit of friendship. We turn strangers into friends. That's the basic root of the word. Now, no one has written more provocatively and encouragingly to the church about this idea of uh, uh, hospitality than a, uh, a Yale theologian named uh, Miroslav Vov, who grew up in Serbia in the Bosnian War. And he wrote this great book about crossing boundaries in pursuit of friendships called Exclusion and Embrace. And what Miroslav Vov says is that what Christian hospitality is, is moving from a place of exclusion, where everyone we keep out there that's not in our tribe, and we come to a place of embrace. We all know exclusion. We do. I'm afraid since the fall, it's been kind of staying in the hotel of our heart this idea of fearing others and loving only our tribe. We all have categories in our hearts all the time that I think all of us as believers with the Spirit at work, we're always trying to tear down those categories. You know, we put people in this category and we put people in this category. We don't have to be taught how to do that. We just do it. And part of growing as a believer is to acknowledge those categories and start tearing down those walls and move from exclusion to embrace. Remember last winter we studied Romans 12 and we went through this book by John Tyson called Beautiful Resistance. All the small groups talked about this. I remember John Tyson telling about his experience. John Tyson is an immigrant. He pastors a church in New York City, but he's from Australia. So he calls himself an exotic immigrant <laughs> because he's white 
And because, and I, I believe this, anyone who speaks in British brogue in the Queen's accent automatically gets 10 extra points. You just have to listen to him. Tyson says because he's an Australian immigrant, he gets treated differently, even in his own church. But then he looks around, and I'm just, we're just talking about his congregation in New York City. He looks around at his congregation and he sees immigrants from Central America or immigrants from Muslim countries, and they get treated very differently than Australian immigrant. There's fear of the other, and it's a little more harder to move from exclusion to embrace. I think it's not only about race and ethnicity, it's about politics, it's about personalities, it's about our socioeconomic standing, how much money we have or don't have. All of these things pre present as categories in our heart, and sometimes we're on the receiving side of how hard it is, right? Sometimes it feels like in our culture, we're in that old you know, uh, children's recess all the children are standing in a circle and we're throwing the ball to one another and you begin to realize that no one's throwing you the ball. Everyone else is getting a turn. How does that feel? At first you've been like, something must be wrong here. Then as it continues and you don't get the ball, you begin to think, do they not like me? After a while you think, you pretend, well, it doesn't really bother me. And then after a while, you get mad. And then after a while, you quit. You just quit if that's the way I'm going to be treated. And that, I think, is a small metaphor for American culture, even American Christian culture right now, as we struggle to move from exclusion to embrace. And then here comes Jesus. Our culture's polarized, not anywhere near where Jesus' culture was polarized. Jew, Gentile, Roman occupation, political parties, the rich and the poor, huge gap, far huger than our gap. I mean, he lived in a divided time, and what did Jesus do? Well, he became walking welcome. He would walk up to people and he'd say things like this, Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is walking welcome. And what does he mean? Who can come? Those who have their act together, those who are righteous, those who uh, come from good families, those who have a good spiritual resume. No, all who are what? Weary. Weary of what? Weary of trying to justify myself. Weary of trying to measure up. Weary of trying to fit in. Weary of trying to please you and you and you. Weary. Tired of being a broken person in a broken world. Weary. And if I could just say, I don't know all of you, and I don't know why you've come this morning, but I do know that I believe the Spirit wants you to hear this invitation from Jesus himself. If you're tired and you're weary, Jesus says, come. Are you tired of pulling your own yoke? 
Would you like Jesus to be in the yoke next to you? Would you like to learn life from Jesus? Come. Right now, in the quietness of this moment, just say to Jesus himself, in your heart, Jesus, I come. I need you. I come. The question is, that's our Savior. We want to walk like he walked. How do we become walking welcome like that? Well, I would suggest to you that it doesn't come from technique, doesn't come from program, doesn't come from strategy. It comes from a changed heart. What do I mean? I mean that the, to the degree we remember that we were outsiders and Jesus pursued us to welcome us into his family, that's the degree we become a hospitable person. Ephesians says we were separated from God. We were outside of the covenant. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were without hope in the world. And Jesus came to us. We were the outsider, and Jesus pursued us. That's why in the Torah, in the Hebrew people, whenever the leader Moses Joshua wanted to rally the troops and engage the nations around them with peace and love, they would say something like this in Leviticus 19, remember who you were. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. Why? For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's in the First Testament. In the Second Testament, we see Jesus practicing this again and again, overcoming boundaries to provide hospitality. Let's sit for two minutes at Zacchaeus's table. Do you remember the story in Luke 19? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. If you grew up in church, he was, uh, I love the Greek word, he was a micron. <laughs> I can relate. Uh, he was a chief, don't let his shortness mislead you. He was a powerful man. He was a chief tax collector. You need to understand that as long as Rome got their quotas from uh, districts in Galilee and Judea, they didn't care. But what Jewish people who worked in this trade would do would be to jack up the price. And if you were a chief tax collector, you were getting tips from all the other tax collectors who worked under you. In other words, Zacchaeus, though his name means clean, he was a crook. And he was uh, not only viewed as corrupt, but as a traitor. He was a Jew working for Rome. So he's a micron. He hears about this miracle worker coming through Jericho, wants to see what's going on, finds a sycamorea tree, which is a short trunk with wide lateral branches so that a short guy in a tunic could get up without too much exposure. And he wants to see this Jesus. And Jesus walks right by the tree, looks up, and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry down. It is necessary that I go to your house today. <laughs> they get to Zacchaeus' house, round food, here we go, it's another meal. 
And something happens in that conversation because all of a sudden Zacchaeus starts saying things like, today I'm going to give half of my money away. Half, 50%. His wife's thinking, oh no, there goes the summer home. Then he says, if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to repay them 400%. And the kids go, oh no, there goes Sabbath school. What got into Zacchaeus that he would go on this adventure of giving? What got into Zacchaeus that now he's the most hospitable person in the house? (laughs) Do you know what got into him? It happened with Jesus' first word to him. Zacchaeus! Zacchaeus must be, wait, I've never met you before in my life. How do you know my name? How do you know my name? Zacchaeus had enough money to try everything in life to feed his soul. But it wasn't until he heard the king of the universe say his name and call him a son of Abraham that his heart exploded in generosity. When you know that the king of the universe knows your name and calls you a son or a daughter, you explode in hospitality. You can't not not do it. That's the motivation. Remember who we were, outsider, and remember that he pursued us to call us sons and daughters. So, we've seen hospitality has driven the church through the age. We've seen that what hospitality means is a love of strangers that crosses racial and ethnic boundaries, that crosses socioeconomic boundaries, that crosses spiritual boundaries, uh, moral boundaries of, you know, know Jesus, don't know Jesus. And it it crosses uh, even boundaries within the church walls where you, you meet people here on Sunday mornings and you learn their name and they're no longer strangers to you. It's all of that. It's living a lifestyle of that, turning strangers into friends. So, quickly, as we begin to wrap up, two thoughts for you. Two thoughts. One, what this means if we're going to be a church on mission and practice hospitality, we need to reframe the mission, the way we look at it. I think sometimes what happens is we get up here on the stage and we say, yeah, our mission's to be an, uh, a, 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 a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And you people on the stage, you, you can do that. And, you know, that's for the leaders. That's for the staff. No. The mission of Jesus Christ when it comes to hospitality, turning strangers into sons, distance into daughters, starts at your table. It starts with your resources. It starts with your pursuit of others. It starts right there. You know, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, the mission, 
he always said it's like a, a mustard seed, right? A mustard seed, barely visible, but it grows and it grows and it grows, and soon the birds are putting nests into it. You know how to become part of the kingdom of God? Well, you've got to be like a child, a little, humble child, a naive, innocent child. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. You become like a child. Jesus, when he was with us, he never once set foot on the marbled halls of Rome because it's in those power centers of Rome and Washington, D.C. And, and Moscow and you name all the... That's not where the real action's at. Do you know where the real action's at? Where the kingdom of God is on the advance? You walking across the street to your neighbor this last Christmas with your cookies, with your neighborhood parties. That's the kingdom of God. So, real quick, no matter what your personality, no matter where you're coming from, there are at least four considerations to, to see the mission. One, maybe you're being called to actually pursue relationships and friendships across racial boundaries. Here at our church, we have this great ministry for uh, Colorado immigration. And uh, maybe you've read this in the paper. What's beginning to happen now is we're starting to get uh, refugees from Afghanistan in Colorado. And so our ministry, we're going to be looking for people to take refugees into their home. We're going to be looking for people to give rides. We're going to be looking for people for tutor, to teach them how to shop at King Supers when the strike's over, to, to, uh, to, to, to learn life. We're going to need people willing to cross that boundary and help Afghan refugees know the love of Jesus Christ. There's another, our global missions program. You can contact Nick. By the way, you can find that through Kylie Waters on our website. Uh, Nick Lillo on our website. If you can become a daily prayer partner for our missionaries, pray for one missionary every day. You are partnering in this love that around the world our missionaries practice of turning strangers into sons and distance into daughters. That's one way. Another way, socioeconomic. Perhaps you be called to, to go to the poor, those who are really struggling right now in life. We have this great ministry started out of Waterstone by our own Kirk and Donna Zimmerman called Giving Heart. It's on South Broadway. And every Tuesday and Thursday, they feed 30 to 40 homeless people. Perhaps you'd be called to bring a meal in or help with a meal or pay for a meal. And the cool thing is, Kirk and Donna would even want you to come in and sit with everyone around the table like Jesus and enjoy that meal with whoever shows up that day. You can do that. Go to givingheart.org. Uh, you can plan for a week off this summer to hang out at a camp with our Royal Family Kids Camp where we bring all these foster kids from the inner city of Denver out to a camp, show them the beauty of Colorado and the love of Jesus. Some of you need to plan now to take a week's vacation in this summer and go and do that. And then there's this idea of crossing this boundary between those who know Jesus and those who don't. At Waterstone, we call it neighboring. Neighboring is praying for your neighbors who live near you. It's engaging them in conversation. Whenever you see them, you stalk. I, I almost said stalk. You stop what you're doing in a non-stalking way, and you engage them in conversation because our lives unfold one conversation at a time, and we want to be present for those conversations. And then thirdly, you invite them either to your table uh, on, a, on a holiday or you, one of the things you'll be hearing about in two weeks is this for our neighboring goal. Every month we're going to preside, pre present a neighboring environment 
for the entire congregation where you can bring someone that you've been talking to in a non-threatening, warm, positive environment to experience us Christian type people. Now, there's one more way I wanna talk about making strangers and friends, and that's in this room. Most of us come to worship with the vertical only in mind, connecting with God, declaring his worth, having him fill up our soul, the living bread, all that, and that's good and that's right. It's the, it's the priority. But Jesus is less than satisfied with our worship if it's only vertical. It also has to be horizontal. So what some of you need to do, as many of you are doing, I've seen it, you're carrying index cards and a pen, and when you meet someone you don't know, I've seen you, you're writing down the name. And you bring that with you here, and you're learning names and names and names, and you go out of your way at these crazy greeting times or out in the hub, at the donut area, and you're learning names. I want to remind you that that is worship too. You don't come here just to get your own bucket filled up. You come here to fill others' buckets up. And you learn names, and you get to know them, and at some point maybe, hey, is there anything I can be praying for you this week? Can you imagine what our church would be like if even the extroverts would begin to do that? Can you imagine? Second thing, this is where I might get you uh, in trouble. I might get in trouble. I think we not only reframe the mission, but we need to reframe our view of our home. In American culture, we tend to view our home as an oasis of comfort, a refuge, a way to put everything else out and just enjoy our life at home. I'm suggesting that that is not the complete picture of why God gave you your home. I'm challenging you and me if at least once this year, once, we would take courage and invite people to our home or to our dorm or to our apartment. Maybe we have a meal. Maybe we have some kind of party. Maybe it's a holiday gathering. But you use your home for the mission. It's a your home is not your oasis. Your home is a tool. And as we reframe that, can you imagine? We are a church of about a thousand people. Can you imagine if every unit at Waterstone who calls this their church home had a gathering of four or five other neighbors or people, we would impact four to five thousand people in our community with hospitality. Are you willing to do it once this year? That's the challenge. So I close with this quote. It's by uh, Alan Hirsch. (laughs) If every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around the table once a week to neighbors, we would eat our way into the kingdom of God. There you go. Would you take a minute now? I asked you at the beginning to practice hospitality. I didn't. The Apostle Paul did. Now I want to just give you 30 seconds of uh, quiet, maybe some music in the background. Make your commitments with God, and then we'll sing.